Father, we ask right now that you would please, please settle our hearts and our minds and help us to hear from you. Because as we have heard today, your word is living and active. We trust that your word will now serve the purpose of convicting and of rebuking and exhorting and admonishing us. And, and it will result in glory to your name. So we pray that you would do this for your name's sake. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read out our passage today. We kind of are skipping, uh, we're not skipping over, but we're jumping now to chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. And I've left the, um, last week we went through the first eight verses of chapter 4. And from verse 9 until the end of chapter 4, I've left because those two themes there in the, um, from verse 9 up until 31 is all about uh, idolatry and how the Lord did not show himself to be in any form and so therefore we should not make any carved images and that's exactly what the second commandment talks about and then the verses um, in 32 to chapter um, to, to 40 of chapter 4 which we will go over now are all about the Lord being one and there is no other and therefore we are not to have any other gods before God. So I'm going to read out um, from chapter 4 now, from verse 32, and then chapter, uh, from verse 32 to verse 40, and then chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. So Deuteronomy 4, 32, this is God's word. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of, of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire, and because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. And brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Chapter 5, 6, and 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's word. So, as I said, the, the Ten Commandments 
are quite confused in modern Christianity. I remember when I came to Christ almost 10 years ago, I was, uh, I came to salvation in a church that was very hyper grace. So they um, emphasize the grace of God, often unfortunately as more of a license to sin. So the grace covers you. So you do whatever you want, man. You're all good. Jesus is your homie. It's, it's, it's all good, okay? It's, it's all about grace, man. And I remember um, then having a conversation very early on with a friend of mine back in Canberra who was not a Christian. And I remember saying to him, um, talking about Jesus and, and telling him how amazing uh, the gospel is and saying, you know, it's all about Jesus. And, you know, I don't even know the Ten Commandments. Like the Ten Commandments aren't important. And I was almost wearing it as a badge of honor. Like, it's, don't worry, man. It's not about law. It's all about grace. And thankfully, God um, had mercy on me as a very immature believer and led me on this path of understanding his word. Um, and uh, But that is an example of what I think is a great danger that embodies a great danger in our society now of this form of lawlessness or some people call it antinomianism which is um, just comes from a greek word nomianism comes from nomos which means law and anti is kind of against or in place of so it's like this you know anti-law this anti-lawlessness which says that there is no need for obedience to god's word um, because grace covers you and that is a great danger for today because the ten commandments are not to be ignored for us now they are not the means to salvation they never have been um, we know that the law is good and we are bad so the the law was there for a particular purpose and we now don't ignore the law but we also know that we don't follow the law in order to receive salvation but we look at the law from a place of salvation from a place of what god has done in christ and one particularly helpful way of understanding the law is by john calvin and his threefold use of the law which a lot of people um, have used now as a helpful understanding so he would say there's three uses of the law there's the mirror so the law as a mirror, the law as a restraint, and the law as a guide. So the law as a mirror is the law, um, when we look at the law, it's, it acts as a mirror and we see our sinfulness and our, our wickedness. We see how far we fall short of that. And we also, in a different um, mirror, perhaps at an angle, we see God's righteousness. So the law acts as a mirror that shows us our sinfulness and it shows us God's righteousness. The law also acts as a restraint. So the law kind of restrains evil in some sense. So humanity. Most of the time, regardless of where you are, most humans will know that it is wrong to murder, right? And particularly in the Western world, we know it's wrong to, to, to kill. And that's because, as I said last week, our Western ethics have been largely built from a Christian framework. So the law in this sense kind of acts as this restraint in some sense for evil. And thirdly, 
the law is a guide. And this is more for those who have been saved by grace. The law now acts as a guide, not in order to achieve salvation, but as a guide for us to walk according to God's instructions and his righteousness. So the law is good. As Paul says, the law is holy and just. We are bad. We are the problem. The law was fine. It's just we are bad. So then Christ obviously comes in as the only one who is good and he fulfills all righteousness, living according to the law. And we then through faith in him receive salvation as we are forgiven of our sins. So the key thing, like this is what what I would want us to understand before we approach the Ten Commandments is that our approach to the law is now defined by the cross. So that's how we understand the law. It is defined by the cross. So the cross is, in a sense, the moment God comes out from behind the law and shows his grace toward humanity. So if you imagine the law as a barrier between us and God, so God is on one side of the law, Here's the law and we are here. So that's how it acts as a mirror. Like we, we look through the law, we see our sinfulness, but then if we can peer through, we see his righteousness. But the law kind of acts as a barrier. And when we look at the law, we, we, we don't um, experience grace, but we actually realize this great chasm, this great gap between us and God more and more. So the law is there kind of in between us and God. And when Christ comes, it's almost as if God, he comes out from behind the law in Jesus Christ to where we are. And he takes, he then lives in this place of the flesh, in this place on that side of the law. And he brings us in behind the law to now this place in God's presence. So the law stays, but what has changed is our position in relationship to the law and God. So the law is now no longer a barrier between us and God. God has come out from behind the law and he has brought us into his presence. So the law is still there, but it acts as a guide. So when we look to the law and when we stumble, if we were back on this side, when we stumble on this side and God is on that side, we have no hope. What do we do? We just realize our sinfulness more and more. Whereas now in Christ, God has brought us out from the other side of the law to his presence. And we look to the law as a guide. But when we stumble and fall, we then remember we are in Christ. We are in this place of grace. So the law stays. But what changes is our position to God in respect to the law. It is no longer now a hurdle but it is a guide to us. So as we approach the Ten Commandments, we should remember that our position to the law is now from grace. God has come out from behind the law. He has brought us in to his presence. Um, It still reveals his righteousness. It still reveals our sinfulness. Yet we look at it now from this place of being in Christ, where there is now no wrath on this side of the law. There is no wrath for God's children who have trusted in Christ. So with that foundation, let's dive into the first um, commandment or word here. And I say word because um, these are probably a better translation is the 10 words. So the, the Hebrew name for the book of Deuteronomy is actually called these words. 
that's that's the the proper name for it because those are the first in Deuteronomy 1 1 it says these words and so it's actually God's word to us and I say that because commandment in our day has a lot of baggage to it and we think it's bad because it's a commandment whereas commandments as I said a few weeks ago are actually good they are God's instruction to us but Deuteronomy is um, chapter 5 and Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments are actually ten words to us. So ten words of God to his people. And the first word that we have here in verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. So this is a clear call to exclusive worship. That's what this is. This is God saying, you are to worship me exclusively. There is no place for worship given to anything else in this world. So to understand exclusive worship, I'm going to ask and answer, hopefully, four questions today. The first is, what does it mean to have no other gods? Secondly, what are the gods, lowercase g, what are the, low, uh, the, the gods of our culture? And then thirdly, what does exclusive worship look like in practice? So what are the practices of exclusive worship? And then finally, why? Why does God demand exclusive worship? And we have to finish with the why and we have to understand the why because if you only understand the what's of this, then you will simply be following this from a place of moralism to just do them because you're told to without understanding from your heart why God says this. So we have to understand the why. Firstly, what does it mean to have no other God? So to have a God, a lowercase g God, before the true God is simply to worship something other than God and hence why we call this exclusive worship. And we should understand Worship, given that worship is also a word that gets a bit confused in modern Christianity, we should understand worship in a simple way as giving a particular um, devotion to something or someone. And devotion is to, you know, devotion is what we love or what we are loyal to. That's devotion. And so worship is giving this devotion, being devoted to something. So what do you spend your time thinking about? what occupies the majority of your time and energy and that would be a pretty clear indication of what you are devoted to and we'll talk later about how to discern and guard between a devotion that is directed towards something other than god that is not necessarily sinful like it's okay to be devoted in one sense to your work because you don't want to not be loyal to your workplace you want to be a good worker right um, so it's okay to have this sense of devotion in one way about being committed to your workplace. Um, but we will talk a bit more about how to then discern when that devotion becomes a lowercase g God, when you're actually giving yourself to your work as a God. But at its core, God has created us to be worshippers. We are worshipping people, all of humanity. We will worship anything. It is so evident in our society. It's so easy for us to worship anything. We were created to worship, to express 
this adoration, like we have this eternal longing to express adoration, to give, our, to give ourselves to, in devotion to someone or something. And that eternal longing that we have to express adoration is only ever to be directed toward the God of heaven and earth, who we know as um, revealed in Jesus Christ. Because only he can satisfy that eternal adoration. Only he can satisfy the longing that we have to worship. And often what happens is that longing, that adoration is then misplaced in other things, in other gods. And we are then on this path of unquenchable longing because it's placed in these things that never satisfy us. They only create insatiable desire for more. God is the only one who could satisfy our longing for worship. And this is what is called idolatry. Idolatry is when you love anything more than God, basically. And so to have other gods before God is to offer that eternal spiritual devotion toward anything other than God. And much of this is about allegiance. It's about allegiance. It's about where our true allegiance lies. Is it with God or is, is it with something else? Where does your allegiance lie? Because it can only be in one thing, either God or something else. So imagine if you were in the army and you were going off to war. Uh, you obviously have an allegiance to your country and to your commanding officer. And imagine if... For whatever reason, we went off to war with uh, communist China or something like that. And um, I went off and I said, I'm, you know, I'm really keen to be going off to war to fight for my country and my allegiance is to this country. Probably like 80% of me, but like there's 20% of me that actually wouldn't mind communist China, you know, getting one in and I think that could actually be all right. And so I'm like, you know, like I'm enough to fight, like I'll fight for you guys. I'm 80% of the way, but actually, you know, there's a part of me that is aligned with communist China. And so um, I hope you can still let me fight. And of course that, that would be um, ludicrous and you would not be going off to war. And it's the same thing. And no wonder why the Bible describes the Christian life as warfare and has so many examples of us being soldiers in Christ because we are to be completely devoted to God. Our allegiance is completely to Him. And a helpful way to understand this is this is about a posture that we have. So it's a posture which recognizes God as supreme, supreme over your dreams, supreme over your jobs, your hopes, your aspirations, supreme over your family, supreme over every single thing. There is this posture that recognizes God as supreme. And I wonder if you notice that for those of us who went through the Psalms, who was re were reading through the Psalms, and we spoke about this as a group together in the Psalms, like when we, we went through it for those three weeks, I think if you went through it according to the plan, or at least somewhat, you would see that the psalmist goes to God in any and every situation. 
That's their posture. Their posture is just always toward God in any and every situation. It sees the psalmist sees God as absolutely supreme. And so they would look nowhere else but to God. Where else would I look? Psalm 73, whom else do I, whom else do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. That's the posture of the psalmist. That's the posture of recognizing God as supreme. So whether in joy, we see in the psalms, the response is to praise God. Or in grief, their response is to plead for God's mercy. Or in anger, their response is to actually lay their frustration at, at the feet of God. They would never try and hide it from God because where else are they going to go but to the God of heaven and earth? So that's, that's a beautiful thing because if you understand this, then you understand there is a place for righteous lament and righteous anger toward God, not at God, but in a way that says, God, you're going to see this anyway. Nothing's hidden from you. You know what's happening in here. Help me. I lay it. I am. I'm, I'm, I'm really depressed about the situation that you have put me in because I recognize you're sovereign. So laying everything at his throne of mercy. And that is a posture of recognizing God as supreme or simply recognizing God as God. That's it. Recognizing God as God. And so our posture is always to look toward God. Like he is our true north on the compass. If we need to find north, to find where everything else is, it is toward God to then understand everything else in this life. He is our true north. And so not having gods before him means to look to him in any and every situation. Our allegiance is completely toward him. Now, because there is a gray area in this that we will talk about, since being devoted to God and seeing him as supreme doesn't mean not enjoying things in this life. Like it doesn't mean you can never go on a holiday or it doesn't mean you can't enjoy your work purely for, you know, whatever the content is or whatever it is you do in your work. That's not what this means. But before we get to that, we should examine what potential things of our culture can become lowercase g gods and therefore would fall into this place here that God is saying, you can't have this before me. You can't be devoted to this in any way. So what are the gods of our culture? We already know a god is something that we, we give our devotion to, something or someone we see as worthy of our worship. So in the context of the Bible of Deuteronomy in the ancient Near East, there was a plethora of gods and most of the time, 3000 years ago in like Mesopotamia and these sort of areas in Egypt, people would create gods according to something or someone in this world. So you had Shamash, which was the Mesopotamian god of the sun. And this followed through because then in, in like Greco-Roman culture, you have probably Aphrodite is a god that most people have heard of. She was the goddess of fertility. So you go to her if you are infertile and you pray to her and there were sort of gods for our needs and you just create these gods. And um, the people then were totally fine. There was no exclusivity to worshipping these gods. You just added gods onto your uh, plate, your religious plate of worship. So the people in the ancient Near East were totally fine 
adding a bit of Yahweh worship onto their already existing plate of gods. So there was a pluralistic mindset in that culture where people made gods in their image and added any number to suit their needs. Now, my question to you is, do you see this today? Do you see that happening today in our culture? Do we see Jesus being more of an addition to already existing lives? Jesus is added in to our existing lives of devotion toward other things. Because just as the culture 3,000 years ago added gods to their existing plethora of deities in order to fill some felt need, I think a lot of the time in our culture we can seek out other gods because of some felt need, something missing in our lives. And our culture, this 21st century Western culture is increasingly full of things that are designed to attract our devotion. Remember, I I spoke about this back in our series in the Letters to the Church in Revelation, this idea of what is a spectacle in our society and how our society is just full of spectacles in the sense of things that captivate us, that we give our attention to. And that is our society. Our society is designed, uh, our society actually conditions us to give our devotion onto new things very quickly and then to move on to something else even quicker. So as a result of this age we live in, we are exposed to new ideas, new products, new experiences at a rapid rate and we are conditioned to make gods out of anything. Like classic example of how this has influenced us is obviously the habit of scrolling of scrolling through either like a social media page or, or something and just scrolling through. And like I was looking at some uh, teenagers, I think they were waiting at the bus stop or waiting at a cafe and I just glanced over and they were scrolling through. And I think it was Instagram because I saw pictures coming up and I just assumed that's it. Uh, and I think they averaged about half a second on each photo. But they were still managing to scroll like, scroll like, scroll like. And I just couldn't believe it. Like, I was like, how can you even understand what that is? That's like a split second you're on there. But that is, that's the culture we live in. And it conditions us to move on from things, to be captivated for a shorter and shorter amount of time. It's actually like, don't be ignorant and think that it's not conditioning you. It conditions you to give your attention to something else very quickly and then move on and give your attention to something else even quicker. And so how how does that then help us to wait upon the Lord, to wait upon God, one of the most fundamental disciplines of the Christian life? How does our society help us to wait upon the Lord? It doesn't. It actually makes it harder and harder because we are instantly gratified in um, even just Googling anything whenever we want. And so it makes it very difficult then to wait upon the Lord to come through, whether you're struggling 
for in a job situation, struggling to discern where you should live, what you should do. And most of the time we spend a bit of time praying about it, but then we just think God's not answering us. I'm going to move on and make it happen. And that's because we are conditioned that way in our society. So that means that we actually make God smaller and smaller. He becomes almost non-existent to us, apart from a select few times. And the point of this, the point of this culture that we're in, this is, it's not that we need to look out for the the lowercase g gods of our society, like as if as if there are pre-existing gods out there. And I'm saying, Gary, do not go to Mawson shops because there's a calf there. Don't do it. You're going to bow down to it. Stay away from it. It's not, it's not in that way because I know you're prone to that. Um, it's not that at all. It's actually, it's actually that we should be looking out for things in our society that have become or could become gods to us. It's not that there are existing gods out there. I mean, number one, we know that a god is nothing. But it's that there are... Uh, Anything, anything can become a God to us. That's the point of this. And our society conditions us to give ourselves over to those things much more quickly than previous generations. So our phones are not necessarily bad. Praise God for having a phone that I can use as GPS or to be able to call someone when I'm locked out of the house. Praise God for that. But phones can then become these things that we metaphorically bow down to and I mean we're reminded of this because I don't know if you have this on your phone but I get the reminder every week of my screen time average and it's like it's just saying to me this is how much you are devoted to me up 11 percent well done worshiping me and I don't even want to look and I don't I don't I feel like compared to most people I don't look at my phone a lot but it's still like horrifying for me to see I spent that amount of time on my phone and that is, like, um, if worship is what we are devoted to, and if we were to look at our lives, how much time, like if it had screen time from God every week, this is how much time you've spent intentionally with me. Down 2%, down 3%, seven minutes a day. That would be awfully depressing. But it's quite a confronting thing to show Man, we're in great danger of having other gods before God, of showing our devotion, giving our devotions to these things. I think what is most prominent in our lives in this age, and I've spoken about this before, is this God of human flourishing or the God of self, where the whole goal of society is to live your best life now, to be all about your happiness, have more products, have more experiences, Go on more holidays because you are what's most important. You are the most important thing. Your happiness is most important. And we end up serving that idea. We serve that idea. And so the gods of our society are really anything that we inevitably give our allegiance or devotion to. And it could be anything. And Jesus hits the nail on the head with this in uh, his earthly ministry in the Gospel of Luke and in Luke 18, this I think this is the New Testament character which most closely resembles our modern life. The Western 
21st century man, I think is most closely resembled in Luke 18 with the rich young ruler. So this is where a rich young ruler in Luke 18 verse 18 comes to Jesus and said, says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. He explains some of the commandments and the, the rich young ruler says, yes, I've kept these. Good, I'm, I'm tracking along well so far. I've kept all of these commandments. And then Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler turns away and he's sad. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is to say it's, it's impossible. That's impossible. And it would be easier for that to happen than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say, of course, nothing is impossible with God. So if you're born of the spirit, then you won't make this decision. Like that's the thing. This rich young ruler of Luke 18 is us. We are in the most wealthiest, the wealthiest um, era as far as um, the majority of the population having access to resources, to materialistic things. We are the rich young ruler. And I wonder what we would say if Jesus came and said, sell everything, sell it all, come and follow me. And that's what we need to be confronted with. This is Jesus saying, don't have other gods before me. Where does your allegiance lie? Is it with me? Do you trust that I will provide everything that you need? Or are you going to cling to this materialistic life of comfort that you've built for yourself? Are you going to go away sad? Where does your allegiance lie? Because Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. You can only serve one. You can't have other gods before me. So how do we now protect ourselves from ending up like the rich young ruler and having many things, all of this stuff, which become gods before the one true God? And I'll go through the last two points briefly. This is um, where what does exclusive worship look like in practice? Or what are the practices of exclusive worship? Because you might ask, does this mean that we can't enjoy anything? Can we not have possessions? Like, can't we enjoy anything? And the, the point of this is not that um, you cannot enjoy things like going on a nice holiday, as I said, or, or enjoying the workplace, enjoying a, a, um, a decent home. But what we have to recognize, firstly, is that God is the source of every good thing. That's what we have to understand. God is the source of every good thing. So Calvin also said, you can't behold God clearly unless you acknowledge him to be the fountainhead and source of every good. So he says, you can't, you can't understand God. You can't know him clearly unless you acknowledge him to be the source and fountainhead of all good. 
You have to see him as all good. If you have bought into this compartmentalization idea that is so prominent in our society, where you kind of have God first and then family next and then your career and it sort of flows on like that. And God has this part, but then there's all of these other parts that God isn't really involved in. And it's kind of a compartmentalized order. And you don't see how Jesus owns, impacts and transforms every single part of your life, your workplace, your home life, your experiences. They are his and to be served for his purpose. If you don't understand that, then you will make gods out of anything. You will give Jesus some of your life. And then you'll just make gods out of anything else. You'll serve them. So exclusive worship means recognizing God as the source of every good thing. He is the source of a good family life. He is the source of job satisfaction. He is the source of every good thing. All good flows from him. Now, with that said, there are particular practices which should be central to our lives as a a means of keeping us in this place of exclusive worship and not creating other gods before the main, well, the one true God. And the main practice that is central to this comes from the biblical practice of offering the first fruits. So if you remember in the Old Testament, God had initiated a practice among the people of Israel in offering the first fruits. So offering the first and best of their crops and giving it to God. So the first and best of their grain, of their oil, of their wine, before they could enjoy any of it, they were to give it to God. And usually it was, it was 10%. That's where we get the tithe from, to give that first part to the Lord. Or we see the... Um, practice of offering a lamb without blemish. So the point was it was the first and best. The principle was giving your best to God. So they were to give this lamb without blemish. Not, not a lamb with a broken leg and kind of the runt of the litter, so to speak. And Obviously, this was because if you have to give something small and insignificant to you, it's very easy to give. It would be easy for me to give something that I don't care about. It would be much harder for me to give something that I care deeply about. And this is why God instituted it to show, to remind people and to give them an opportunity to show where their allegiance lied. You give the best of it. And the Israelites tried to circumvent this And in Malachi 1, God addresses that and he says, you have tried to give me blind lambs and sick animals. And God says, you will be cursed if you withhold the best from me. He's basically saying, how dare you hold out on me? I own everything. Do you think I wouldn't notice if you give me a blind animal? I don't need it. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need it. This is for you and your heart. This is for you to show where your allegiance lies. So for us, for us now examining ourselves, do we give our best to God? Do we give the best part of our day? So in word and prayer, do you give God the best part of your day? 
whether you're a morning or night person, everyone knows I'm a morning person, and I think I could still make a case for, for word and prayer in the morning. Even if you do the most of it in the night time, it just makes sense. The start of your day, start it right with the word and prayer, even if it's just for a moment, like two minutes in the morning to set your day right. But the point is that if you are a night person and that is where you're most attentive, that is where you are going to absorb the most information, give God the best part of your day. For me, that's not the case. I'm terrible after 8.30 p.m. So the morning time is when I set aside an extended period of time to give to the word and prayer because that is when I'm most attentive and I want that at the start of the day. And I think that's why the psalmist again and again says, let, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. I want it in the morning because I need it for my day. If I have it in the night, I'm just going to go to sleep. And yes, I have a peaceful sleep, but I need it in the morning. Or when we gather, I wonder if the Sunday gathering or um, when we gather for prayer, anything that we do in the name of the Lord intentionally as a corporate group, like as a community, if that is your first preference because you see the importance and command, like in Hebrews, to not forsake the gathering of God's people. You see the importance of that. And so that, so your, your actual week is framed around the gathering of God's people. Or is it just something that is, um, if it's convenient for you in that week, you'll come along? Or is it you giving the best part of your week, your first preference to the Lord? The third final practical application of this is for finances. Now, we don't, um, we don't talk about actually financial giving a lot in this community. I think if we're on track, this is probably like the third time I think I've, third or fourth, so we're probably like once every month or two. Um, and that's kind of intentional actually from my part, both because I don't think financial giving is, it's, it's fundamental to the Christian community, but I don't think it's central to our Sunday gatherings. But what I actually would love for our community because giving is an act of worship and because it's giving our best to the Lord, I actually think it glorifies God a lot more if you have to then be intentional about giving. Because it's quite easy, if I was to get up a slide now and give a two-minute spiel on why you should give, the things are up there and I say, I'm just going to give you a minute now to get out your phones and give. You could reluctantly just, or just you know, remember, okay, I better give. Five seconds, done. But I actually think it glorifies God a lot more if you have to intentionally set aside time on a Sunday to say, I'm always giving to the Lord because I see it's fundamental to give financially as an act of worship to the church. But I'm going to set aside this time, just five minutes, to pray and intentionally give. Because God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need it. It's again, it's more for our hearts. So that's why we should have a practice of giving, but I would love it as a community of individuals, we actually are intentional about giving. So we do have an account and we will hopefully have a, a proper account in our name, but we have like a City Reach family of churches account and you can give to that and say Canberra giving. Um, but we haven't spoken about it all that much because I kind of would love people to actually say, hey, I, I want to give 
and I want to get the details for that some way, or I want to make a practice of giving. And I think that actually glorifies God because I'm under no impression. Like if you don't give, this church is not going to fail. This church will stand or fall on God alone. So we don't need, in one sense, your money. The church doesn't need my money. But giving is primarily done through the local church as an act of worship for our hearts. And so then, this is another question of, are we giving our best to the Lord? Are we giving the best of our finances to the Lord? It's kind of like us putting, like us giving financially is like putting a stake in the ground, so to speak, and saying, you are worthy of everything, God. I know you don't need this money, but I'm giving because you own everything anyway. You're worthy of all of this. So shape my heart to remember that money doesn't have a hold on me. You do. And I bow down to you and you alone. I'm just going to finish. I'm going to skip what I was going to um, go over in Deuteronomy 4, but just finish with the last question of why does God demand exclusive worship? And if we stick with this um, practice of giving our best to God, the why of exclusive worship is both because God is God alone. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is supreme over every single thing. He is worthy of every ounce of our devotion, every single aspiration, dream that we have. He's worthy of it all because he is God. He created everything. He created you to be in this communion with him for all eternity. This life now, every breath that we take is training ground to then spend an eternity either with him in his presence in full and utter uninhibited worship or apart from him for all eternity. And he is worthy of every single ounce of our devotion now because it is what we will be doing for all eternity. But the other element of his worthiness and the why. Why does God demand exclusive worship? And why should we give him exclusive worship? We give our best to the Lord because he has given his best to us. He did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us. So God did not withhold. Praise God that he doesn't act like us. And just give us a bit of his grace, just a tiny bit of his grace. And then he's got other things to do. Maybe there's some other creation that he has made in a galaxy far, far away. I don't know. Well, I do know that's not the case. God gave us his best. He didn't withhold his own son. He demands exclusive worship of us because through Jesus Christ, he has given us all of himself. Jesus is God. He hung there on a cross for us. So it's not like God is some kind of big CEO that stays distant and says, give me worship. He's actually this CEO, so to speak, of the entire universe that then gave up everything to be born as a humble baby, live as a humble servant and live this life of utter humility and suffer the most humiliating death. And that is God giving us his best. That's my son, my perfect son. No sin, not an ounce of sin in him. A perfect life of faithfulness. When we 
are so unfaithful, when we live in rejection and rebellion and God says, hey, here is my son. This is what Paul says in, in Romans 5, 7 to 8. He says, you know, someone might die for a good person. Maybe, maybe someone might die for a good person. But who would die for an enemy? And God shows his love toward us in this. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he didn't withhold his best. He gave it up. He gave his son up to say, to bring us from the other side of the law into his presence, into communion, into forgiveness, into his grace, into the fullness of his grace, not just a tiny little portion, but the fullness of it, where there is no wrath. I was listening to um, on the radio this song and... Um, I'm realizing now that some of you don't listen to the same music I, I used to, but um, this is quite a popular song. Most of you would know um, What If God Was One of Us, or The Song Is One of Us by Joan Osborne, um, but written by a guy from the Hooters. And the, line, uh, the lines of the song is, you know, what, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. And it's a very religious song written back in the 90s. And it says, if God has a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and Jesus and the saints? And the chorus is, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. And though I you know, don't care for the language of just a slob like one of us, but there is some truth in that that we... Um, uh, wicked and, and rebellious. But the answer to that question of that song that had won, I think, a bunch of Grammys and was a worldwide hit is that happened. God was one of us. That happened in Jesus Christ. God walked on the earth. He is one of us. That's how we have redemption. God was one of us. He was a baby. He was a boy. He lived as a man. God walked on this earth to bring us in. That's why he is worthy of all of our devotion. He is supreme over everything because he didn't stay distant. He died for us while we were enemies. That's the why. That's why we give exclusive worship. That's why we have no gods before him because he is worthy of every ounce of our devotion and he hasn't left himself without witness. That's why now we'll take the Lord's Supper. We remind ourselves every week that because of this, because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the body broken, hung upon a cross for us in our place, like we should have been on that cross and more, we should have been punished in that way. Christ comes in, takes our place, spills out his blood, the blood of the new covenant spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. And therefore, of course, he is worthy of everything. Why would we give ourselves to anything else when such an event as this was done for us, such an act, such an act of love on the cross was done for us and for the glory of God?